I've been in a couple of meetings and uh, this week already, and I've, I've mentioned while I'm there that uh, I want to kind of try to explain how I'll be going through it, because if any of you are old enough or can remember family circus cartoons where someone would go, you know, the kids would be going from the kitchen uh, into the upstairs bedroom or whatever, and they take all the circuitous routes. Uh, I, I want to try to spare you from that experience this morning. By just giving you an overview of, of what I want to talk with you about this morning, um, my passion is the ministry of the local church in many ways. So I'm I, I am uh, um, I work in the area of congregational renewal or attempt to work with our churches within the Canadian Baptists of Atlanta, Canada in the area of congregational renewal. And a driving question for me always is, what is the mission God calls us to as his people? And I recently, finally, after a long process, completed a thesis on the missional church in, and, uh, here in Atlantic Canada. And I've had a lot of conversations with people about, is the missional conversation or even what we're rolling out, which is, uh, and under, uh, calling our churches to identify and live into a paradigm that we're calling being a mission edge church is it purely a bandwagon and I would contend that it's not even if terminology comes and goes it's a calling the church to what the church has always been meant to be and I want to talk a little bit with with you this morning about why I'm convinced uh, that that is so and as a manner, as a way of, of stepping into that, I want to refer to a book that I've been trying to read through this past summer um, called, um, it's called Dominion, the Making of the Western Mind by the British historian Tom Holland. Uh, in North America, the book is called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. In this book, Holland is essentially asserting um, much as the atheist philosopher Nietzsche had done so some 150 years ago, that the ideals uh, of Europe and the Western world, values we so often take for granted, such as human rights due to the equal dignity of every person, or the inherent value and worth of the poor and weak, the primacy of love, the necessity of forgiveness, the wrongness of oppression, that all these and more are values and beliefs which uniquely flow from the Judeo-Christian roots of our society. And Holland contends that such values did not originate with the Greeks or the Romans, as he originally thought. In fact, my best understanding is as he was working through this book, he would not, in fact, identify as a Christian believer. Um, though as I've looked online, watched him in interviews with people like N.T. Wright, uh, it seems like that he is now much more embracing and identifying as one, partly out of, I believe it is, the work of this book that he had done. Um, when he talks about the fact that he finally dawned on him that these values did not emanate out of Roman or Greek society, um, you know, and he says it's laughable in many ways. These were not values that resonated with them. Um, nor did such concepts, he says, originate within the Eastern world of the Orient, nor uh, of the, uh, what he calls the shame and honor cultures of old pagan Europe. And if you differ with his assertion on those statements, then I'll tell you, you'll have to argue with him I, more than me. 
But, but what did strike me is that in spite of all the admitted inconsistencies and failures of Christians through the centuries to faithfully live in alignment with such principles, I believe Holland is right when he asserts that these principles nonetheless uniquely emanate from a, a historic Judeo-Christian worldview. Tim Keller, in his review of this book, he, he writes that such ideas would never have occurred to anyone unless they held to a universe with a single personal God who created all beings in his image um, and with a savior who came and died in sacrificial love. Keller continues to say, if instead we believe that we're here by accident through a process of survival of the fittest, then there can be no moral absolutes. And life must be, if anything, about power and the mastery of others, not about love. That, Nietzsche had declared, and this is still color, is the only way to live once you are truly willing to admit that the Christian God does not exist. I want to continue, in a sense, because I want to lay the foundation for why I believe that this call to, to a missional understanding of the purpose of the church is integral to the church, I will say, through, through all time and in all places, by referencing Holland's book a little bit more. Um, there are two insights I want to emphasize, the first from the Old Testament and the other from the New. The first from the Old Testament, as I'm sure you can appreciate, it was widely presumed in the ancient world that God, or more commonly, the gods, was pretty much exclusively at the beck and call of the rich, the powerful, um, the victorious, those at the top of the heap. So the pharaohs, let's say, or, or someone like Alexander the Great, uh, the various Caesars. Evidence of the gods' divine favor was understood to be seen in their bestowment of victories, of wealth, of power. These gods weren't understood to be on the side of the losers, of the, down, of the downtrodden. And this is why the Jewish scriptures provided such a radically different understanding of the divine. God's special possession were not so much understood to be the rich and powerful, the mighty, the rulers and conquerors. Instead, it was a nation of slaves that he identified as his own special possession. In fact, the Old Testament's depiction of God, I think we, to be fair, is that he knew no favorites, that he loves, rescues, and makes himself available to all who would call out to him. But we also would be right to say that most particularly, he makes himself available to the weakest, the most vulnerable, the outcasts, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged. Indeed, not only were such individuals at the bottom rungs of society understood to be loved by God, but they each and all were understood to have an equally privileged uh, status, regardless of their standing or class in life. For all human beings were understood to be shaped in their creator's image, and as a result, equally bestowed with the dignity of that creator. 
and this was radically, my understanding is radically incongruous and completely mind-blowing to the understanding and worldview of all other religious and philosophical systems of that day. And, and I would contend to this day as well, including, I'm afraid, <laughs> this might be a little bit uh, controversial, but I think it can be arguably seen by watching politics. I know there's some Americans in the room, but south of the border, where, where the, the assumption is we see the evidence of God's favor through, through might or through riches or through power. That's not what we read of uh, coming out of the Old Testament, particularly. And then turning to the New Testament, it takes it even further. Not only do these scriptures indicate equally that God loves all, including those at the extreme margins of our society, so the most broken, um, the most destitute, who Jesus refers to as the least of these uh, brothers of mine, but also that such people, in fact, uh, are invited to be adopted into his family, to become co or joint heirs with Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 17. And even this whole understanding that as Christians that we have of Jesus claiming to be both human and divine, as evidenced in verses such as John 14, 9, um, where Jesus says, as just one example, those who have seen me have seen the Father. It was not as peculiar in Jesus' day uh, as we might think for someone to claim to have divine status. Again, as you likely know, it was not um, um, such, there were other people who claimed to have shared in divinity, but it would only be a select few. And again, it would only be those who were at the top of the heap. So the Caesars would claim to be sons of God, evidenced by their being the rulers of all there is. The evidence of divinity was thought to be, going back to Tom Holland and as he writes, the evidence of the divinity, the proof of it was thought to be the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself, to nail them to the rocks of the mountain or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. And Holland says this, that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god, could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. And this no doubt is what the Apostle Paul uh, had in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, to the, what he called the scandal or the offense of the cross. When he wrote that when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. I think as I travel amongst our churches, meet with people who are precious, precious people and sincerely seek, I think, to walk in their faith with the Lord, the unfortunate thing is too many who claim the name of Christ have lost sight of the revolutionary and, in fact, really the politically subversive nature of such truth claims, seen most emphatically in the, in the understanding that this one who was God's son, who indeed was God come to earth, should have deigned to go to the cross. Within my thesis that 
I worked on, one of the questions I really had and wanted to explore is what is our understanding of the gospel? Such as, is the gospel, when someone in our Baptist context say, we're looking for a preacher who will really preach the gospel, is the gospel understood only to be the, the message of repent and believe, or is the gospel the story of the life that results from all that God has done for us in Christ. And I think how we answer that impacts how we understand what the mission and the message of the church is. But I believe this most emphatically, and that is that it is the message of the cross, which is the very hinge, the foundation, the exact center of the good news we proclaim. I, I won't go all into it, but I like to compare it to being like the middle C of an 88 keyboard. Its center is found in what Christ has done on the cross. That's why I wanted the passage read out of 1 John 4 that we did. It is the foundation, the exact center of the good news we proclaim. For it was by going to the cross, by making himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a slave, by dying a criminal's death, by, in Tom Holland's words, by plumbing the depths to which only the lowest, the poorest, the most persecuted and abused of mortals were confined, that God, did, did God declare that his love and favor and deliverance extends to all, even to the very lowest of the low and the most marginalized of all. Like carefully adjusting the focus, uh, uh, you know, on a telescope or a microscope so as to see the image with clearness. So it is through looking to the cross that we can most powerfully and unmistakably see as John says in our scripture reading of today, that above anything else we can say about God, we have to first affirm that God is love. And that reality then informs and defines everything else about him. And so this is what it's all about. The foundational biblical assertion that God is love and that out of his profuse generative love, a phrase I steal from a friend of ours by the name of Michael Beck. Out of his profuse generative love, he wants to pour out his rescue and goodness and provision on every individual. That is at the very heart of everything we are and everything we are about as people of God. That God is love is the very heart of what we call the gospel. The good news that we're called to make known through both word and deed. It's all that we're to be about. This message is to shape everything we do, everything we say. And the call and invitation of the good news is that we can enter into living an entirely redefined, recalibrated life, where we're told that we are to be in the world, but not of the world, that we're to have be renewed through the renewing of our mind this recalibrated life, one oriented towards our being a vessel for God's blessings of life to be poured out to those around us, knowing that God is all in for humanity, for every person, regardless of ethnicity, gender, class, health, or struggle. And one of the primary ways in which God chooses to pour his blessings out into his world is through calling his people 
to join him in his continuing mission of bringing his healing and flourishing to, to people, that we as his people would meaningfully and tangibly live into our neighborhoods and into our world the same love and restoration and grace that we ourselves have first experienced through Jesus. And this is why we as the CBAC, as I alluded, the denominational family that ADC is a part of, are inviting our member churches to be joining God in what he is already doing um, through identifying and living their calling as mission-edge churches. And I'll just wrap up by giving you, and there'll be more information that uh, hopefully over this winter you'll be seeing to talk about what a mission edge church looks like. But the definition, and some of this comes out of a working group that Dr. Robbins was a part of a couple of years back. But the definition if, of a mission edge church is that we are communities of Jesus followers who align ourselves around his continuing mission of sacrificial love, um, starting right within our immediate neighborhoods and from there reaching into neighbor, radiating his love into neighborhoods all around the world. And so as we think about it, is that something that is only for a time or is that what churches have always been called to be? To be communities of Jesus followers who align themselves with his continuing mission of sacrificial love starting right where God has put us in our immediate neighborhoods, and then from there radiating his love around the world. And so we've also said we think there are six things that should be common to a mission-edge church that should naturally exist. One is the understanding that we live the Jesus way as the people of God, not only when we're gathered together as the church, but also, and maybe even more so, as we pulse or scatter into the world around us. Like the beating heart that contracts and expands, contracts and expands. That's an image of the church week in and week out. We come together for certain things we do as the people of God together, but then we pulse out. And so, as I like to often say, if someone's asking, where is the church tomorrow morning at 1030? You should be able to ask yourself, where, well, where will I be at 10.30 tomorrow morning? And that should be at least one place where the church is. The second marker is that we would radiate hospitality, inviting others to know the love of God that we ourselves have experienced. It's treating all people as really kin, as family. And it's interesting that even though our word of kind or kindness carries within it, that word of kin for family. The th uh, third marker is that we will develop renewed gospel fluency. I believe the message of evangelism, the message of being able to share the good news has become a lost language for many of us within the cultures in which we live. And we need to rediscover how we can with joy and with authenticity and with naturalness, share the good news of what God has done in our life through Christ. The fourth marker is that not only is that we will embody the good news. It's not just about um, speaking it, but also embodying it. Um, living lives that have been transformed by the power of this story. It was said by the late Marshall McLuhan that the medium is the message. 
And so it is that in a similar manner, our actions are the medium that will interpret and empower and enflesh the words that we speak. The fifth marker, and I'd love to have hours to unpack all this, and I know I'm over time, is that we embrace partnerships. There's times where others will see what the church is doing, they should be able to say, we want to be involved with that. And there's times we'll see what they're doing and say, can we come alongside and support you in what you're doing? Recognizing that not only will it uh, multiply impact, but it will facilitate friendships. And friendships can naturally become fertile grounds for sharing the good news story. And the final marker, so live the Jesus way, that we radiate hospitality, that we're developing fluency in, the, in speaking the good news, that we embody the good news, we embrace partnership, uh, partnerships, and then there's contextual responsiveness, knowing that there should be no one who can know and love a place, a location, uh, that we are called, to, that we are, as God's people, we are called to a particular time and place. And therefore, we understand, however, that our immediate context is continually shifting, meaning we must always keep abreast, always considering how we can most appropriately speak and live into our context, lest we needlessly become a stumbling block, hindering others in their journey to Jesus. So we are believing that these six markers together paint a picture of the posture of humility that Mission Edge churches will adopt and pursue in their passion to faithfully live out God's calling upon their lives. As followers of Jesus, we live this mission in and out of the realization that God loves all people and that the good news that he has entrusted to us is that we would become vessels or extensions of his love to all those that he brings across our path, that they too might come to know what it is to become children of the living God, joint heirs with Christ our Lord. So let me just pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who makes known your love in visible and physical and tangible ways and that the thing that you, one of the things that unites us together here is having experienced that your goodness through Christ to us and we pray God that we will offer ourselves equally to be agents of this same love to those near and far with the desire that all would come to know your goodness in their own personal lives. And we pray these things all in Christ's name. Amen.